This is Cocktails Distilled, a podcast that takes your favorite spirits and liqueurs from the still to the cocktail glass. In each episode, we talk to distillers and creators about particular expressions that their brand have released, what they are, why they were created, and in what cocktails they can be used. Are you ready to understand what's in your glass, or perhaps should be? Welcome to Cocktails Distilled. When you think of aperitifs, it's a fair bet that Mistel is not one that you've come across very often. A type of fortified aperitif, Mistel originated in France, where grape juice and other fruits are mixed with some sort of locally made spirit. While this style of drink has a long history in the grape growing regions, today we are looking at a Mistel created by award-winning Australian bar, Bulletin Place. Adapting the style while adding some good old Australian irreverence, the team created Ruby Mistel. To understand more about this aperitif, we talked to award-winning bartender and Bulletin Place's own Tim Phillips about history, taking a product to market, and the cocktails you can make with it. Thank you for joining us, Tim. No worries at all. Thank you so much for having us, uh, having me, Tiff. It's a, it's a pleasure to be on. Now, from what I understand, you originally made the Ruby Mistel in your Sydney bar, Bulletin Place. Can you tell me how that came about? Yeah, um, so I guess um, for those that haven't had the chance to, to, to come to Bulletin Place uh, or, or know our general kind of shtick, uh, we ultimately have been doing a new cocktail list every day uh, for, the, for the eight years that we've, that we've been around. And, and, and every day that, that cocktail list is always inspired by produce that we receive from as local as possible growers. We really try to focus on the Australian biodiversity and seasonality. And, and, and to be perfectly honest with you, after a you know, at this stage, five or six years, we, we kind of got sick of, you know, doing the, the same thing every single year, every single season that would roll around. So throughout our kind of exploration and, and, and our bar manager at the time, Evan Strove, and my now business partner in this project, we were working on a lot of sort of fermented projects. So this is sort of fermenting our own fruit wines. We were looking into, you know, making uh, our own vinegars, for example, fruit vinegars, and, and doing a whole lot of experiments. But a lot of these experiments, they they, they took a long, long time. And that kind of investment in time uh, was fun, but I guess, you know, it obviously obviously costs money and projecting how much strawberry wine you're going to sell in six months' time is quite difficult and, and finding a way to store it. So the, the category of Mistel was something that kind of appealed to us. Yeah, I mean, you, you sort of introduced it really well. Mistel is traditionally made by fermenting a, you know, fruit juice essentially with apples or pears or grapes traditionally. And then that ferment is then mixed with a spirit of the same produce. So you would traditionally mix a brandy with some uh, fermented grape juice or something like that. So, so we wanted to do the same thing, but we got, we, we were mixing it up a little bit. We were trying all sorts with nectarines and with bananas and peaches and pineapples. But the one, I guess, which was the most tasty and the one that we were sort of having the most traction with was the earthy and quite piquant rhubarb juice. So that kind of like real earthiness and its sort of availability of 10 months of the year in Australia meant that it was, that it just sort of worked really well for us. And we were sort of making it in five litre batches and, and really just giving it away to our mates. It wasn't something that was appearing a lot of the time on menus, but we, we just sort of loved it. We were, we were just offering it to guests as a little bit of a handshake at the end of their experience with us. So what made you decide to take it from the bar and into commercial production? 
Yeah, so we, I guess after after some time of, of sort of making it in five litre batches and receiving some, you know, some some really positive feedback for it, you know, we, we started putting our heads together and thinking, you know what, maybe we can sell this. You know, obviously we were concerned that you know, where we were producing it at Bullet and Place in the batches of five litres wasn't the most consistent in terms of its 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 colour and wasn't its most consistent in terms of the you know the, the rhubarb we were getting and juicing and that end product. And each kind of batch had its own idiosyncrasies and foibles and, and, and certain highlights as well. So we wanted to make it a little bit more of a commercial viability by expanding. So we, we actually consulted with a friend of ours and the friend of the venues who, who, who makes their own gin. Uh, and we asked sort of him about how his experience was bringing something to market. And then that began the journey of us essentially finding a third-party producer that would be able to do this on scale uh, without sacrificing the integrity of the category or without sacrificing any of that or taking any shortcuts that we had gotten to to produce it in five litre batches at Bullet in Place. And I guess that process was probably the most most arduous. There was There's a lot of producers out there which will aim to kind of match your liquid's flavour profile, but but certainly don't want to do the hard work to get it there. And we were very conscious to ensure that we were certainly, you know, meeting the same guidelines and procedure that, that we were doing in the small batches at Bullet in Place. And we we're very protective of that. And in fact, we actually, once we actually found, you know, that third party, we, we actually feel like by working with them, we've, we've considerably improved the product and we've, we've added a considerable amount more sort of depth of flavour and character to it. So uh, it's been a long process, but it's been a, certainly a very trying and educating one as well. Has creating a commercial product been what you expected? <laughs> well, it's, the, it, it's certainly full of lowlights. It's certainly full of disappointments. And I guess comparing it to, to opening your own venue, it, it's quite similar in that regard as well. I mean, you know, opening your own venue is one of the most stressful things you can ever do. And, and obviously the amount of work and you know, money and creative juices and you know, just soul that goes into doing it, and obviously, once you finally open the doors, you know, that's when the hard work really begins. And uh, and we're certainly finding that now, you know, that that kind of big sort of dopamine release of finally getting a, a, a product to market. And, and after two and a half years of sort of getting, obviously, the design right, not to mention the liquid as well, we certainly had that big sort of release. And now it's only just become we've actually got to sell it. You know, we've actually got, we've actually got right. to move, you know, that 25,000 bottles that we that we ha- that we invested in, you know, that six thousand liters of rhubarb juice that we invested in. So now now comes the fun bit. But certainly from opening our own venues, we, we you know, we're not we're not shy of getting our hands dirty. Explain to people what makes a Mistel different from other aperitifs. Yeah, so I mean ultimately it I mean ultimately a Mistel is a fortified wine. You could loosely term it as that. I mean, we would say that Ruby is simply an aperitif. And again, an aperitif is a much more sort of broad category. Quite typically, a mistel, as I, as I sort of mentioned, would take a fermented fruit juice, very low, lowly fermented fruit juice, what we would call a must, and it would normally be fermented up to 2% alcohol. So obviously not very high at all. The reason why you're doing that is just to, to eat a little bit of the sugar in the fruit, but also you know, create some kind of fermented tannin and some almost mousy characteristics. When it comes to rhubarb, there's not much inherent sugar to work with, really. We've got, you know, it's, it's not a vegetable, it's not a fruit, it certainly is just rhubarb. And anyone that's sort of taken a bite of rhubarb raw or, or even juiced it for a smoothie would know that it is very earthy and very tart. 
and we like the idea that it didn't have a lot of sugar. So when we ferment ours, we we don't we don't take the alcohol level very high at all. You know, we we don't even take it you know to a point where it where it really kind of registers. What we're looking for is the change of character. And then we would typically in a Mistel production match it with a, a distillate of the same fruit. In our case here, it's you know, we don't make a, a spirit from fermented and distilled rhubarb. We take a juniper spirit that has been infused with fresh rhubarb. And then so we match those two. So kind of meeting the same guideline as a typical Mistel. And then the secret herbs and spices come into it there. A lot of Mistels will add certain botanicals to give a character. When it comes to our ruby uh, we add a French gentian, uh, we add a touch of quinine, and then we steep the whole thing in mandarin and grapefruit skins just to, to really highlight and lift those aromatics. And 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 typically a mistel, which is bottled at 17% alcohol, would be drank with maybe some sparkling mineral water, or it would be drank on ice or drank slightly chilled as a lovely kind of aperitif. And it would also make a fantastic kind of nightcap at the end of the meal. Whereas we really aim for Ruby to be that start of the day, start of your picnic, start of your barbecue style of drink, where we have a lot more kind of inherent acidity in there. Uh, there's a little bit of bitterness that comes through with the gentian. Uh, and then obviously that, that that big, bright, you know, citrus peel that that floats in there as well means that it's a it's an, a perfect aperitif and, a, and, and party starter for, you know, for any kind of outdoor occasion or group occasion or, or, or a precursor to a good meal. Was the recipe that you used for this an original recipe based on Michelle tradition or was it a found recipe? Uh, so it was a recipe we certainly just workshopped. I think this recipe, the initial recipe, was just an extension of our, our fruit wine escapades. When it comes to a right. fruit wine, I mean, uh, typically, a, I mean, a fruit wine is, you know, if, if you were just to take, as, as the most kind of simplified version, if you were to take some apple juice from your fridge and you were to add a yeast, and you can purchase sort of brewer's yeast or champagne yeast, uh, which would have a little bit more character, and potentially even add a little bit more sugar in there so the yeast has got a bit more to feed off, and then kind of leave it in a mason jar and kind of let it sit for a couple of days, let that yeast eat the sugar and let it convert that CO2. After about a week, you know, this this apple juice would certainly convert and start to start to turn, and you'd have the, the, the very, very beginnings of what we would call a fruit wine. Now, there, right. there is a little bit more sort of method to, to our madness when we work that out. It's, you know, it's how much sugar we add, how much yeast we add, how long we leave it for, because certainly, you know, the, the product can go bad very, very, very quickly if you're not keeping an eye on it or know what you're doing. So as an extension of that, we felt like we were getting our rhubarb wine quite right, and then we really wanted to start preserving it. So the way you would typically preserve it is through fortification, and then, you know, quite typical of the, the vermouth category, for example, would do this as well. So we wanted yeah. to, to fortify it with a, uh, we, we initially did a mix of a gin and a vodka because we found that gin was too pungent and vodka obviously being a neutral spirit was a good way of you know, watering that, you know, flavour profile down without dropping the alcohol. And then we would just to add a little bit more sort of vibrant, fresh characteristics, we would chop up, you know, just some, to be honest, fresh rhubarb that we just slightly heat up to soften and just to release some of those, I guess, sort of flavours into that spirit. So we mix those two together. Um, originally, we were bottling it at 20% alcohol. That would be ready for use in cocktails, or it would be certainly preserved so we could, you know, give it out to our guests. You know, once once you kind of get the alcohol level over you know, 16 17% alcohol, 
that any kind of oxidization or any future fermentation really gets halted. So that was kind of the, the magic mark of, of being fortified in, our, in that sense. So in that sense, it was pretty close to that original recipe. You know, we have added some more complexity through the citrus peel and the gentian. But yeah, we're pretty close at the start. But I guess the version we've got now is a lot more sort of amplified and, and, and concentrated and, and, and much sort of uh, more, more cocktail friendly, I guess. Aside from the gentian and the citrus peel that you've mentioned, what else goes into this particular mistel? We have created, a, I guess, a almost a, a bitter tea bag, which is quite high in gentian. There's a few other kind of, you know, kind of subtle sort of flavours in there that, that really you wouldn't pick up. And there's a little bit of Australian ginger, uh, which has been, you know, dry, grown and dried in Queensland, which which really just gives a slight kind of character. You wouldn't pick it up unless someone really mentioned it to you. But besides besides that, we really keep it really quite clean. I mean, you know, as much as we've spoken to this, you know, this product sort of method, the whole idea of it was really to, you know, to, to be that perfect kind of canvas for, for cocktails and for drinks at home. So people wouldn't really need to add too much more to it. So having that kind of inherent acidity matched with that sweetness through that little bit of sugar that's in there as well. I did mention there was a little bit of sugar, didn't I? There is a little bit of sugar in there. Um, uh, much less sugar than uh, your typical kind of aperitif or amaro or vermouth for that matter. And then that was about it. We really wanted it to be made to be mixed with soda. So our, our, our whole kind of moniker, you know, Ruby just add soda would mean that it would be the perfect spritz without having to purchase any Prosecco, without having to purchase any garnishes. If you have, you know, good ice at home, bad ice at home, if you want to put it in a jam jar, a wine glass, a highball, we thought the the, the product was was fairly malleable that you could really just mix it with soda and it would make a great drink. Now, having a look at the colour, it's a little bit more vibrant than you might normally expect from rhubarb. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, typically, the darker the the darker the the, the rhubarb, it means the colder the I guess the colder the region it's been grown in. So, in every bottle, we've got eleven percent fresh rhubarb juice, and that rhubarb juice typically comes out probably probably around that colour. Actually, it comes out really quite bright. Um, Obviously, once we ferment that, once we add our spirits to it, once we add our secret herbs and spices, the colour gets dulled considerably. So much like in the whiskey industry or the cognac industry, we, we do colour up. And that's through, a, that's through a use of a natural colouring. And in, in our case, there's a natural colouring which doesn't alter the taste in, in any way whatsoever. I think there's 0.01% in every bottle, but it's a, it's a mix of, uh, I think it's a mix of red cabbage and beetroot, funnily enough. And that okay. kind of blend ends up giving you a color that means means it doesn't flavor the product in any way but just means it becomes shelf stable and it means it's a lot less susceptible to things like being light struck so if you were to have your bottle open and keep it on your shelf in front of your window you're not going to lose the color after after some time and um, it just helped us get some consistency through batches as well because what we were finding is when we were obviously making it with rhubarb from the spring it would look different to rhubarb from the winter uh, so just sort of colouring up and getting that consistency right was obviously very important and, and, and put consumers and obviously people buying this at ease. Of course. Now, speaking of not changing the flavour, describe what the flavour is. Yeah, okay. So if I was to crack open a bottle right now and if I was to sort of put the bottle to my nose or even pour it into a tasting glass, the first thing you're going to smell is that really bright grapefruit and mandarin peel 
it's going to come at you quite hard and, and you probably need to be take that back, take that sniff back, take a sniff of your hand to reset and then bring it back up to your nose. And then you're going to start getting some of the subtleties in there. So after, right behind that sort of grapefruit and mandarin, you're going to get this really weird kind of alpine mentholy characteristic, which is the gentian. Okay. And now that gentian, if for those that have never had or tasted it, you probably would would have tasted it in some of your favorite aperitifs and not known it, but it actually comes across as an almost slight menthol characteristic or a slight kind of spearmint characteristic when, when used in very small doses. Obviously we, we take a sip and we get that really bright acid. So that acid is coming from a little bit of wine tannin through the fermented rhubarb juice, but more importantly, that acidic backbone is the rhubarb juice itself. It's that earthy, astringent, acidic rhubarb. And then that is all cut through with the, with, with the sweetness. So the sugar will cut through that, but still not cut through enough to, to make sure you've got some tannin on the side of your mouth and to, to cleanse it and become quite moorish. And as that sort of finish sort of goes down, you start to get a little bit more complexity. So uh, obviously that little bit of quinine comes through. So almost that tonic water characteristic and that juniper gives a little bit of a punch and that alcohol strength, which is bottled at 18%, yeah. means it's all enough that it's that it's not going to give you a, a full whack, but certainly is, is, is worthwhile. Um, yeah, as I sort of said, we really feel like as soon as you add some soda water, which 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 inherent flavor is just carbonic acid, that just adds a little bit more sort of effervescence and a little bit more acid to the whole mix. And it just means it's a, it's a, it's a really easy, clean, very sort of bitter, sour and sweet aperitif. Now, if someone were to buy a bottle of the ruby for the first time, is soda water the way you would want them to first experience it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, there's there's obviously a couple of conversations. Is that when you when you bring out a brand, I mean, there's you, you generally would come up with a, I guess, what you would call as a serve strategy, and I guess you're trying to dictate to to trade or to bartenders or to consumers how you should sort of drink it. We, we've said to both parties, we we really feel like the best way to serve this is to just add soda. That being said, it is a completely malleable product. We've obviously done a lot of experimenting and anyone that keeps an eye on the bullet in place Instagram has probably noticed the creativity that comes out of those guys, you know, every week and, and, and their liberal use of Ruby within that. Right. You know, we, we certainly want to di- don't want to dictate to bartenders what they should and shouldn't do with a product like this. But, you know, with that said, there's there's been some amazing experiments that have that have meant that have meant we've shown Ruby to be sort of certainly very adaptable and, and one of the, the best kind of examples I'd say is a, a Negroni apple which is equal parts you know gin sweet vermouth and Campari as so obviously anyone that's listening to this podcast would know if you were to replace any of those three ingredients with Ruby you would have a fantastic drink so because of the you know the juniper spirit that we use you'd be able to make you'd be able to replace the gin and you'd have this lovely lower ABV Negroni. If you were to replace the fortified wine in the vermouth, that makes probably the most natural kind of counterpart. And then you would have this, this, I guess, this more kind of aromatic and citrusy Negroni. And if you were to replace the Campari with Ruby, you would have this slightly less bitter and almost a real introduction to Negronis, which would work a treat as well. And because obviously there's enough bitterness in Ruby as well, that sort of takes the place as Campari uh, in in a, in a nice softer sense, and that's that's the kind of sort of fun we've been having with it. To be perfectly honest with you, and you know, coming into coming into sort of the, the the colder months, we're having a lot of fun as well using it in warmer cocktails. So it's 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 yeah, it's been it's been working really well. We didn't think it'd be as malleable as as it is. Well, tell us a few of the other cocktails you've been playing around with. 
so one of the one of the favorite drinks which which is we've, we've got a name for it but I, i'm a little bit ashamed of the name it's a it's a, it's a very simple serve and it's a if, if you were to take i mean sour beer and the craft beer movement is 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 going gangbusters and and one of our you know for, for me i'm not a big sour beer kind of guy i feel like it always it always tries to rip the enamel off my teeth so one of the easy kind of spritz or highball serves we've been playing with recently was taking a, a sour beer like the Brooklyn Bel Air Sour and then just throwing in a dose of ruby into that. And we, we've come up with a drink called the Bruby and it's a simple mix right. of, of sour, sour beer and ruby and it's been working a treat. I guess for those at home that probably want something a little bit more elegant, we've got a really lovely twist on it, uh, what you would call a Negroni Spagliato. So a Spagliato would be typically... Yeah, Campari, sweet vermouth and sparkling wine. Uh, we've been taking our ruby with a dry vermouth and then some sparkling wine. And, you know, we we're going to call this drink Cover It and Glitter because it, it seems to seems that no matter how cheap your sparkling wine is, you still end up with a pretty good drink if you get that ratio right of, uh, you know, ruby and dry vermouth. So we're, we're quite fond of that one because it, it certainly takes those $12 sparkling wines and, and turns it into something really sort of magical. Nice. Um, and then obviously with because the uh, yeah because of the sort of the citrus sort of aromatics that we add to ruby it just means it works really well with any drink that is sort of a typical uh, sorry typically with lemon juice or lime juice even even if you were to add a sort of a half a shot of ruby to your gin and tonic that works wonders as well so yeah they're, they're, i mean we've got a few up our sleeve and we're actually putting together a little book which we feel will probably be a little bit little bit of help once we once we get a little bit more exposure in bottle shops but for now uh, we're just sort of screaming from the rafters to drink us with soda. Yes, easiest is often the best with those things. <laughs> exactly. I mean, everyone's got a soda stream at home now as well. So uh, it's, it's to, actually the yes. only yeah, it's actually the only mixer I've always got around the house because of the soda stream now. So we're we're we're, we're trying to keep it easy for home entertaining, and we're trying to keep it easy for those in bars. And we're we're trying to keep the profit margins for those in bars that carbonate their own water. And we're trying to make it easy people at home who, who, who want to entertain their friends with an easy cocktail but only have a bottle of ruby around. Now, if people at home want to play around with flavour combinations, you, you mentioned citrus and a few other things. What ones do you think work really well with the ruby? Yeah, so I guess, I guess the first thing, I mean, when you typically put together a cocktail and you would generally look to have a, a spirit as a backbone or, or – or, or, um, or even a sort of a, some sort of bittering agent as well. I think I think tequila works naturally really well with ruby. That kind of that real earthiness bounces okay. off that obviously that inherent inherent earthiness that is in rhubarb. Obviously, gin is a really natural bedfellow for ruby as well because of the the, the juniper connection. But what we're also finding now that we're playing around with more wintry style drinks coming into that season is the use of brandies. So things like Calvados, Zarmagnacs, cognacs. You know, obviously, something like Calvados okay. with a, like an apple brandy just goes spectacularly well with 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 a with a rhubarb based aperitif. So it's been a lot of fun. I mean, I, I I haven't played around too much in the whiskey world with with ruby as yet, but certainly for now, the the white rums, tequilas, and brandies are keeping me really busy. We've been lucky enough to have most of our bars open in recent times. So what has the reaction of bartenders been to the aperitif? Yeah, it's it's um what's well, been really positive. I mean we I mean the bartending industry is such an amazing community and you know we've we've had probably the hardest year and I don't want to speak for the whole industry, but we've had probably the hardest year 
any of us have ever seen. And we, I was certainly very conscious that, you know, launching a product after a year like that, especially when bars are looking to really, I guess, minimize their offering where they can to save costs that we didn't expect really to come into the market and, and be, and be available and be on the back bars of, you know, a hundred, hundred different bars in the country within a few weeks. You know, it's, we've certainly recognized that it's, you know, it's, 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 there's a lot of bars that are looking to downsize their, you know, their their selections now. Certainly not look to invest in products that are unknown to consumers. But obviously, it speaks volumes to the industry when you can release something and you get as much traction as we have had and as much goodwill. So I think it speaks volumes to the the, the community that we have in hospitality. Um, and I certainly, you know, thankful and thank for them and look to support them as much as possible. And you know, it's one thing I've I've sort of been, you know, screaming from the rafters myself is telling as many people as I can, you know, it's all well and good that we're able to reopen bars again, but it's another thing to sort of get out there and make sure we're we're, we're frequenting them fre- frequenting them as well. So, you know, supporting your sort of, of your you know, your independent Australian spirits and liqueurs and independent bars is all sort of, you know, helping helping us get back on our feet. Do you think a lot of the support from the bars for Ruby has been because it has been made by bartenders, yourself uh, and, and Evan? Yeah, I mean potentially. I mean it was is interesting. We were in Canberra this week and we were sitting at um we were sitting at a bar called Molly uh, down in Canberra and where we were looking at a back bar and we had actually a moment of clarity where we were looking on the back bar and we said, oh, you know, Sean makes that and you know, Jez makes that and such and such makes that and oh, old mate works there and does that. And, and and you'd be surprised now at the amount of you know bartenders or ex bartenders now that have got considerable footprints on back bars, and I guess what's not surprising now is is, is how well that is being supported by by you know the future generations of bartenders and bar owners and and hopefully brand owners as well. You know Australia is such a an amazing land of opportunity, and it's a bit of it's a, it is a bit cliche, but it speaks volumes to say that there are so many brands that we see on our back bars now that have been started by bartenders or they're being collaborated on by bartenders and they're being really supported in the on-premise and in the on-trade. So, you know, I, I would say that because it has been made by bartenders, we're, we're, we're getting, um, you know, we're getting, you know, we're certainly getting supported uh, really well, but I certainly thank these bars and, and, and we'll go out of our way now to make sure that we're supporting any kind of future endeavours by, by people that work in the industry. Now, you've only launched quite recently, but have any bartenders created any cocktails that you didn't expect with Ruby yet? Well, we've we've seen some crackers. We um so far so good, I think. We haven't. I mean, unexpected unexpected is is certainly anything that any that we're seeing. I mean, the, you know, the, you know, we we talk about the Australia being, you know, one of the most fortunate and and an opportunity sort of like ridden lands in the world it's also home of some of the most creative and best bars and bartenders in the world so you know, some of the drinks that we're seeing from bartenders and, and you know we're, we're fortunate that there's a couple of drinks that are uh, being used in the, the, the world-class competition run by Diageo that I've seen and I don't think they know that I'm not judging this year so I, I'd, I'd like to think yeah. that they're using it for the flavor but certainly if they were trying to score some extra points and I was judging I, I'm, I'm that kind of biased that I that they they'd be winning and they'd be up there on the on the dais. Some of the drinks have been great. I think we've we've seen a natural kind of tendency for bartenders to mix with gin and tequila. I'm really looking forward to tasting my first sort of dark spirit and ruby drink. But 
but those those will come, I'm sure, in the winter. But for now, everyone's keeping it really light and bright and refreshing and and delicate and floral, and and, and I'm certainly I'm certainly loving it. And to certainly you certainly get a kick when you walk into a bar and you you are uh, you see your product on a back bar and you ask the bartender to mix you up something with it, and it and it comes out and it's uh you know it's it's something that you've never thought of and, and sort of you know much more delicious than you thought could ever happen with your own product. It's a, it's a real buzz. Now, let's talk about the packaging for a moment. The bottle is beautiful. Is that originally designed by you guys? Yeah, it is. So um, our sort of our, our partners on this is a company called Uncle Design. And I mean, these guys are these guys are incredible. We, we, we came to them with our story and we you know, I guess we came to them with who we were inspired by and what we were inspired by and and. and and part of our story, uh, and, and and a big sort of part of Ruby's story, is that we want to really pay homage to the spiritual home of Mistel, which is in Normandy, in France. France is is, is somewhere that I've lived, uh, and it's somewhere that's very close close to my heart. I mean, my my wife you know, love in any single area in France, and and it's it's somewhere where I can't wait to go back to once all these travel bans are, are lifted. But in Normandy, where Mistel is from, uh, a lot of people have had their holiday homes and. And something that's quite typical in a design feature of all the homes there are these these real beautiful kind of we would call them French shutters, but they would just call them shutters, I guess. And so we really wanted to kind of mimic the the, the French shutters that were typically found in the homes of Normandy. Uh, and and our bottle is actually a direct copy of the shutters of Claude Monet's holiday home in oh, Normandy. Okay. Yeah, and uh, so so that kind of is the is is the ridged nature of the side there. We love the. I guess the minimalism of the bottle. We really wanted the, you know, the the ruby to kind of stand out on shelf. And I think all the work that Uncle has done uh, in the design has really captured, the, I guess, that initial brief that we gave to them. That was a mix of kind of a mix of capturing, you know, what what Normandy is all about, mixed with almost a little bit of, you know, Bauhaus structural minimalism as well. Mm. <laughs> and lastly, but not leastly, I have to say the cap as well. The, the cap or the closure is. Is, is is just beautiful. It's a it's a stack of coins, a stack of French coins, I might add, and with the with the, with the symbol of the sower on top as well, and that that you know that kind of iconic uh, symbol of the sower, which is a uh, you know the probably the most prominent French, and uh, probably the most noticeable French artwork in, in in French culture. It basically symbolised sort of small ideas that can be uh, thrown into the ether and 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 can grow into in big things. So we needed to sort of capture her and. She's certainly uh, a big sort of spirit and icon of Ruby that is the, is the sower that we've got on the cap. Now, speaking of capturing big things, do you have plans for other aperitif releases in the future? I mean, not necessarily. I think, you know, we have never, and this sounds, this sounds silly and, and, and I'm, yeah, I, my, my wife would love for me to, to finally change my opinion on this, but funnily enough, we don't, Whenever we go into a new project, I mean, we, we consider ourselves kind of artists first and, and whether we're opening a, a bar or a restaurant or launching a product, you know, we, we really go into this really, you know, trying to not, and it's not, it's not about the money is what I'm trying to say. So, you know, the, the whole idea of launching a new aperitif right now seems kind of a, a real kind of distant, distant dream that I don't think we would chase in the same way that, we really thought after opening a you know a forty seat cocktail bar in the middle of nowhere in the north end of the city, all we wanted to do at that stage was really just to you know to to give people a taste of 
Australian seasonality and, and, and really just serve nice people, nice drinks in a, in a nice venue. And at this stage, all we really want to do is concentrate on Ruby and, and, and then really just concentrate on, 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 on getting this in people's hands and, and glasses. So uh, at this stage, I'm, I'm certainly going to say no. And, and uh, also saying that because I've, I'm out of good ideas at this stage. I think that was, that was all of our creative juices in one bottle. <laughs> Now, speaking of getting it into people's hands, I assume it's available across Australia. Yeah, so at this stage, we've actually we've just signed with our uh, national distributor, and that will be um, that'll be announced fairly soon. And that's a that that's that's unfortunately a bit of a slow moving process, but it is the process it takes. For, so for now, we, we we sell direct all across Australia uh, through our website, which is www.rubymistel.com.au. You can also check out our Instagram, which is just at Ruby Mistel. And then within the next couple of months, you hopefully start seeing us bobbing up in independent bottle shops first. We're going to look after the small guys first and we're really going to focus on the indies for the first probably at least six to nine months. And then hopefully by the time we're around this time next year, you start to see us uh, a lot more prominently in the, in, in the bigger guys. But for now, we're really just concentrating on our, uh, our sort of direct sales. If you're on the other side of the country and you want to want a bottle delivered for Mother's Day or for yourself, but also looking after the independent bottle shops as well, which are the heart and soul and the artisans of our, our off-premise industry. Now, are there plans to export? I think, I think the story of Ruby and our story is so uniquely Australian. I mean, I mean, it is that kind of, uh, I guess, that kind of nod to France, but still typically very creatively and irreverent when it comes to being Australian. So at this stage, we're really just focusing on Sydney, really, and then we're moving out from there. We're, we're, we're going to get down to Melbourne very soon, and as I mentioned, we are in Canberra a couple of days ago, and we really just want to grow organically, and we just really want to look after our Australian sort of supporters as much as possible. As I kind of said, this is a, it's a project of, of passion, and nothing would, um, nothing would give me more joy and to, you know, to, to really just sort of travel around the country spruiking my snake oil from the back of a boot in the form right. of a, a bottle of Ruby Mistel. So for now it's Australia, but um, for, to all my, my mates that I've, I've, I've lived and worked with in you know, Britain, France and in the US, when I can travel, I'll be sure to, to, to smuggle as much as I can over for you to try. Well, I imagine if it's being used in international competitions, it will start getting some exposure overseas. Yeah, I mean, I mean that would be great. I mean, who who doesn't want their product to be in as many markets as possible? You know, I I think I think for now, it's it's really just an Australian project. You know, hopefully hopefully we look back at this podcast in you know in in, in a couple of years time and it and it has gone gangbusters abroad. But for now, it's really just just the focus to be on the Australian on the Australian supporters. If people want more information, they can, of course, go to your website, which is Ruby Vestal, as you mentioned, or connect to the with the Aperitif on your socials. Yeah, absolutely. We've got we do have a Facebook page, which is which is acceptable without being very uh, very very inspiring. Our Instagram is updated very very often, and that's um, that's at Ruby Mistel. And then, as I sort of said, the website. I'll give it one more plug. It's www.rubymistel.com. .au. And yeah, and hopefully, as I sort of said, you'll start to see it bobbing all up and down in, in, in independent stockers soon. We look forward to that. Thank you so much for joining us today, Tim. Great. Thank you so much, Tiff. And thank you so much to all the listeners. I, I appreciate you taking your collective times out of your days to, 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 to hear a, a bartender spruik about a, 
you know, a, fo- a foreign fortified wine with a, made with a, made with a weird piece of produce for all of your summer drinking pleasure. So I certainly appreciate it. Thank you so much. And we'd also like to thank you for listening. Be sure to visit cocktailsdistill.com to access the show notes. And if you like what you've heard, we'd love you to subscribe, rate, or give a review on iTunes. Until next time, cheers.